In this podcast, Michael DeSanders talks to Michelle Smith, the CEO of the Northeastern Community Hospital. Michelle, what made you decide to study nursing? I'd probably blame my sister, who bought me a little nurse's outfit with the little stethoscope and uh, the little smock when I was really young. So I always knew that I was going to be a nurse and then applied to a number of hospitals when I finished school. Those were the days of the hospital training. So it was either between Mount Gambier or Queen Elizabeth. So I ended up going to the Queen Elizabeth and did my hospital training. So that was something that I had wanted to do my entire life. So I'm still a registered nurse and I maintain my nursing registration. I do my CPD points every single year. I worked too hard to become a registered nurse and I'm so proud to be a nurse that I've continued to maintain my registration for the last 33 years. You know, the wall can't be pulled over my eyes by the clinicians <laughs> because I stay current with clinical issues, which actually really helps me since I've stepped over into the dark side of becoming a CEO. What do you see the opportunities and challenges for the North East Community Hospital being over the next five years? Look, it's probably not the North Eastern alone, if I'm honest. It's the entire private healthcare industry. We're all feeling the pain of families choosing to opt out of private health insurance because their budgets are just squeezed so tight. So it's a tough industry, it's highly competitive, and we're all trying to increase the activity that we get through our walls to keep ourselves commercial and keep ourselves viable. For the North Eastern in particular, we're a values-driven organisation, so we are a community hospital, we're not for profit. We're driven by human values rather than profit margins, but in saying that we also need to stay viable and stay commercially ahead of the game and offer surety for our staff and, and our patients and our visiting medical specialists who you know rely on us to provide that local service for the community. For the North East and the first piece of work that we did, we as an executive team and we as a board, I include the North Eastern board in the strategy for this was to actually look at what the community are going to need from a clinical perspective over the next 10 years. So we knew what we needed to become to satisfy the clinical needs of this community going forward. So we did a big piece of work, a big piece of modelling work a couple of years ago that told us what our growth areas were over the next seven years. Rather than build it and they come, we're actually targeting what we're building. We're building what this community needs with their clinical presentations over the next seven years. So that's how we're managing to develop ourselves going forward. And in your position as chair of one of the country LHNs? Similarly, what do you see as those being those challenges and opportunities? I mean, the challenges, again, in the public sector's money, you know, there's just never enough of it. Having said that, the, the budget's significantly more than the North Eastern uh, for the Air Far North LHN. But we just need to make sure that the money's going to the right place at the right time for the right people in the safest possible way. So it's a much more strategic role being on the board. It's certainly one of governance. It is absolutely a helicopter view of the largest geographical region in in South Australia and the most remote as well. You know, we've got 200,000 square kilometres of lizard to the acre country in terms of population that we have to make sure that they're safe, make sure that they've got the essential services and to deliver those services as close to home as possible. So the challenges are different, same, same, but different. So there's always the challenge of money, but in the region, the challenges also workforce. It's, it's really challenging to, to get a medical, especially a medical workforce out into the most remote LHN. Mm -hmm. and you know, we really struggle to recruit doctors. We've got a, a severe shortage of general
practitioners in the region at the moment. And you know, the days have gone where you've got your family doctor, you've had him all your life, he's in your little town and he's looked after your whole family for the last 30 years. He may, and I say he because predominantly they were male GPs back, that, back in the day. And he was on call every day of the week, 365 days of the year, and he didn't even take his boat out because he was on call for the hospital and for the community. Well, you know, people don't, they don't want to live like that anymore. They actually want to have a life, they want to do shared care, they want to work within a supportive collegiate network and they want to be supported by communities to be able to live their best life as well as provide the best services and care. So we need to look at how we do medical services in a different way in such an isolated geography and support these young clinicians that are coming out and making sure they get to live their best life and get to provide the care that they deserve to provide to the community without burning them out. So we're looking at all sorts of different workforce models at the moment to try to achieve that but it's just it's not an easy fix it's going to take some time. How do you think digital health will change the healthcare landscape in the coming years? just changes every day. It's every single day. You know, we've, we're already you know, firmly in the world of robotics in terms of the acute pointy surgery. We're in the world of, of AI. We're in the world of electronic medical records, you know, love them or hate them. We're in that digital world already. Some of the exciting innovation I'm seeing in the digital space is around data mining and data mining allows you to actually look at complex and significant data sets to come up with an outcome or a solution and so it is being used in the acute area for care of the deteriorating patient so that it's a requirement for clinicians to come up with a pathway to look after and identify a quickly deteriorating patient which improves health outcomes at the end of the day. So the data mining is basically a data set that's collecting all the patient clinical information constantly and it can alert the clinicians to the fact that their patient is deteriorating quickly and the clinician can go and undo a clinical intervention. And I mean it's life-saving stuff, it's not just something that makes a clinician's life easier, it will actually save lives going forward into the future. And I think that's something that is going to be replicated across different clinical areas and functionalities, uh, you know, in the next decade. Similarly, in the aged care, residential aged care space, I was actually hearing about an innovative piece of digital data mining in so far as a, a how to tell that somebody's in pain, an aged care resident who's non-communicative, whether they're experiencing pain, judging by how their muscles are configured on their face, so the clinician or the nurse can take a photograph of the patient's face when they're at rest and comfortable and then they can take a photograph of the patient's face if they think they might be experiencing pain. People grimace in different ways and use their muscles in different ways and it can inform the clinician that this resident is in pain even though they can't say, hey, I'm in pain because they can't communicate. So, you know, there's these tools coming out every day that are improving patient and resident clinical outcomes and then there's the exciting space about the human outcomes which, and again, you know, in the aged care facility, is things like virtual reality goggles that you can put on a dementia resident who can climb Mount Everest in the virtual world or can you know walk through the streets of Paris or Rome and go to their favorite piazzas and all go dancing the salsa with their deceased loved one like it's just amazing what we can do just to help people live their best life so it's going to explode it already is. When you're recruiting for a senior executive to join your team, what are the key attributes you look for in the person apart from their key technical skills and background and experience? 
I'm going to look for, for cultural fit. Firstly, I guess from the bigger picture, I'd need to make sure that the, the candidate was going to fit with the culture of the organisation as a values-based organisation, if we're going to reflect upon the North East. And secondly, I would want to make sure that they're the right, they're the right fit for our executive team. You know, you need to make sure that you've all rounded your team off. You, you need to make sure that you've got people with the right soft skills. You've got your technocrats who are going to, you know, go through and forensically analyse every piece of data and decision making that happens, your strategic thinkers and your practical thinkers and, and we all need to bring our own authenticity into that piece. So I will recruit to pieces of a jigsaw that are going to make an entire puzzle that's going to work for the benefit of the organisation to drive it forward. It's much more than merit, although merit's a part of it, but personally I'm going to look for diversity to make sure that the team's diverse so we don't get stuck in a group think environment. And it's not just about gender, it's about it's about culture, it's about LGBTIQ mm-hmm. community, it's, it's just to bring bring that colour and flavour in to the team and, and that's not just in terms of employment, that's in terms of how you bring a board together, how you do governance, how you make decisions and just how you embrace diversity in general. On the topic of diversity, it's becoming a prominent issue. How have you seen the companies and boards that you are working with evolve and manage these issues? In various different ways, and I, I can only really reflect on the North Eastern and on the health board, and perhaps I, I can bring my health board experience in. On health in general, from a gender diversity perspective, tends to be quite balanced or overbalanced. There's a big female workforce in health, that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Although women are largely underrepresented when you get to the upper echelons of executive management, and that's reflected in boards as well, that's reflected in governance in general. I mean, public sector, private sector, and certainly ASX listed companies. I jokingly say and repeat that there's more men by the name of Andrew on boards of ASX 200 companies than there are women altogether. That just brings in the reality but I think our ASX 200 have finally hit a 30% benchmark for women on those boards so that's a step forward. But if we put gender aside for a minute and think about diversity in general then you can confidently say that Aboriginal people are underrepresented and need to be sitting at the decision making tables especially given the understandable desire for self-determination. LGBTIQ people are underrepresented, as are the disabled, as are the young. So there's still all these groups. So even if we get the gender balance right, we're still not getting the rest right and they don't share equal voice or representation. So we've got a lot of work to do. What are the benefits of working in a board position? Blimey, long hours and um, <laughs> you've got to love it because you're not going to feed your family on what you earn from being in a board position. So my counsel to anyone considering being on any board is you have to be passionate about the board that you're sitting on because it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of communication, it takes a lot of networking, it takes supporting your executive team and your CEO to help them succeed and you've got to crystallise that vision. You've got to give them the end game or they don't know where they're heading and as a board or as a CEO, you have to crystallise the end game for them, but you also need to allow people to take their own pathway to reach it. So don't control them over how they're going to reach the end point. Let them take their own forks in the road and learn their own lessons and allow them the space to innovate. So long as they know the meeting points along the way and they know where we're going to settle at the end, just let them get there in their own time. You've got to have the passion for the board and for the topic if you're going to succeed.
What are your top tips for aspiring leaders? I probably have just covered that in terms of my description of, of crystallising the end game. And I guess, again, you've got to have the fire in your belly. If someone wants a job with me and they don't have the authenticity to show me or they don't have the fire in their belly, regardless of merit, regardless of technical qualifications, I'm just not even going to look at them. I'm going to look at the person who's excited and who's thinking outside of the square and who can sit in the car wash with their laptop on their lap doing an email. And I don't care if they come in late. So so long as they're doing the work and so long as they're helping us achieve the end game, I want to look at those people. I'm not going to look at your qualifications first unless it's a clinical requirement. So crystallise your end game, allow people to reach the end point in however way they want to reach it within the time frame that you set them and don't micromanage. Thanks for your time. Thanks.